Oh, it's so deep. WKCR FM New York, WKCR HD1. Maybe you're listening to WKCR.org. This is Jazz Alternatives, or mm-hmm. more specifically, mm-hmm. as it occasionally is on these Monday evenings, Deep Focus. Wow. Yeah. I'm Mitch Goldman, and we're doing <laughs> it, man. We're doing it. We're doing it and doing it. I have the great, great honor of having Arturo O'Farrell here in the studio with me. And uh, you know how this works. I invite a guest, and uh, first question I ask them is, what are we going to talk about? And you came back to me with uh, two names I don't think I'd ever heard mentioned in the same sentence before. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I have kind of a split personality. (laughs) Are you a Gemini? I'm a Cancer, like right next there. Right yeah. next to Gemini, but the, for sure, um, this is a. Cl- I have a, a huge eclectic uh, Spotify playlist. It just goes all over the map, and so that's the way I love. That's the way I love music, and so yeah, I came back with two really, really <laughs> different uh, responses to you. Yeah. So now, uh, well, what were they? Well, the first uh, w- when you talked about that, you s- used the word fan. And there's a difference between fan and just I can't you can't really say I'm a Bach fan. You know, you listen to Bach and it blows your mind, and there's only so much you can take of it at a time. Um, you don't go, you know, blasting uh, Bach out of the back of your car in the hood. Um, at least I don't. <laughs> um, but I have a funny story for you about that as well. Um, so Messien was the that that aspect of my personality. I, th- I I ripped off more Messien than any contemporary jazz composer that I know, um, and just the influence of Messien, this his book on theory, the the kinds of structures that he employs, and the willingness that he is has to uh, use structures that are normally not met melted together is something that affected me deeply as a musician. The other one was the fan one. That I'm just a huge Steely Dan fanatic ever since I was an Upper West Side uh, pot-smoking teenager. And um, the Steely Dan just represents the kind of uh, sarcasm and wink-wink uh, kind of interior knowledge kind of person that I thought I was, since I've obviously known nothing at this point. <laughs> but yeah, Steely Dan, I love as a, as if just a fanboy. That's, yeah, 
That's, yeah. that's my shit. Whoops. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> you're using the technical term. It's acceptable. Shite is what I said. <laughs> and uh, it is that. There is that, like, knowingness. And uh, it's also married to this musical sophistication and uh, there's all these other things that come along with it that I think people miss when they write them off. One gets the feeling that Donald Fagan may have listened to his share of Olivia Messina. <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> Could be an interesting conversation you know. to have. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, the challenge to me is always to uh, dive into the WKCR archives and find some live unreleased recordings that nobody's heard and uh, somehow came up aces once again. <laughs> I, I take zero credit for this. This is uh, an amazing resource that we have here. Um, Steely Dan. So Steely Dan, they've uh, gone through many evolutions over the years, actually. they Before they became a full-time studio band, more or less, they were actually a working live band. And uh, we went back to 1974. They toured a lot that year. And uh, we've got them at the Rainbow Theater in Finsbury Park, hmm. London, May of 1974. Wow. You know, yeah. that's actually, in some ways, my favorite Steely Dan. Um, that's kind of the really more country-ish uh, Steely Dan. The more, I think, the, the uh, darkness factor was down a little less. And the... Uh, the kind of uh, f uh, get down funky band kind of thing was much more uh, the the see the funny thing is when they become kind of uh, more sophisticated and Steve Gadd and Wayne Shorter come in um, uh, it, it never loses kind of this very basic roots uh, steely dan that occurs in this era it's still kind of smarmy and kind of uh, lounge lizardy, and so uh, I think this is it in more than its pure essence than all it is later right. on. <laughs> all right, all right. Now I'm getting hungry for this. Okay, I say we dive in. Let's listen to a few tracks and come back and uh, slap it around a little. You're listening to WKCR. I'm Mitch Goldman. Arturo O'Farrell, my guest tonight for Deep Focus, and our Deep Focus is on Steely Dan. We are live in London on W K. C R Good evening and welcome to the Rainbow. Tonight you will have a musical treat. All the way from Los Angeles, the marvelous Steely Dan.
Ladies and gentlemen. Yes, cooking tonight. I think we're gonna cook tonight. I have that feeling. Let me see something here. It works. All right. Mm. This next song is called The Boston Rag.
right, all right, all right. Hold on, fellas. Hold on, hold on. They just insist on playing instruments. <laughs> what is wrong with those people? <laughs> well, that's what we're talking about. If you're just joining us, you landed in the right spot because uh, just kicking off Deep Focus tonight with Arturo O'Farrell and his call of uh, subject of Deep Focus, Steely Dan, playing in London live in 1974. And it's funny because we found a few recordings and... That really could not be more different than the other one that you guys haven't heard, which is a recent recording, which is almost studio pristine. These guys are uh, these guys are sweating. You know, the other thing that occurred to me is that <clears throat> I grew up as a journeyman musician, and my father was, uh, uh, you know, he was a very good composer and, and arranger, and so he had a huge respect for people who could play their instruments. And we did. I did a lot of jingle work. I did a lot of commercials. So, you know, we would go we'd get together at ten o'clock in the morning, and in an hour and twenty minutes, we'd record sixty-second version, a thirty-minute version, a fifteen-second version, and all of it had to sound, and all of it was written out and extremely, extremely well written, and you had to sight read. And so, my, the, like one of the first things that really impressed me is people who play well, people who get to the point quickly which is something that sometimes is a little antithetical to jazz. Jazz musicians tend to take 40 choruses to get to the point. But if you have eight measures, and you can say something profound in eight measures, that's a real trick, I think. And it's not just a, a cheap trick. It's something that requires a sense of poetry. And I always found the Steely Dan um, records uh, rife with these little snippets of, of absolute brilliant uh, eight-measure solos. Oh, yeah. And, of course, as the years went on, they became renowned or uh, maybe um, uh, notorious for <laughs> bringing in top-shelf jazz musicians to play on the records. But, yeah, there's so many memorable little nuggets. Those You can't hear the song without hearing just the way Phil Woods played that song right. that solo that one time. But it's just uh, burned in. And, um, yeah, yeah, it's real kind of... Well, we were talking about, that's kind of one of the things that I loved. We were talking about Carla Blay, and we were talking about how Carla Blay also has that kind of um, crystal clear, every note is very deliberate in her writing and in her playing. I had the privilege of seeing her and Steve at the Standard a few weeks ago. And <clears throat> that, that, that real-time, deliberate, improvisational skill set is really, really lost on a lot, a lot of people. Especially today, I'm going to get a lot of flack for this, but especially today in conservatories that turn out uh, hundreds of highly skilled young musicians who may not have the editing uh, ability that, uh, you know, that they might choose to if they want to have a better aesthetic. But getting through a lot of notes in a quick manner is, 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 is not as much music to me, and I'm guilty of that as much as anyone. But um, well, I know. Car I Carla does that. Carla, yes. Carla plays... A plink, a plunk, a high note, a low note, maybe a chord, and then that's it, and it's done, and it's magic. It's just like Monk. So you know, it's it's um, and and again, a skill that she shares with uh, Larry Carlton and Jeff Skunk Baxter. And, oh yeah, oh yeah. The, I mean, yeah, the guitar players have come through this Steely Dan, this band. It's uh, stunning, and yeah, for uh, for those of us who geek out about <laughs> tone. <laughs> And time and just musical expression, 
it's uh well, there's legendary stories too <clears throat> there's a studio in new york i wonder if it's still around it's called skyline oh yeah sure <clears throat> anyway skyline we were doing something up there and the owner told me that uh, steely dan had like blocked out a month <laughs> and he was telling me stories about how these guys like would record five drummers oh yeah Oh, and then yeah. just use uh, Steve Gadd's hi hat and Rick Morata's uh, snare drum, and they would sit there and like just make these combinations of ex- really excruciatingly fine studio. And that's something else that, by the way, I think that Steely Dan did that nobody else did. They were extraordinary. They thought of the studio as another instrument, another artist. And they used it in a way that I don't think anyone really has because the people that tend to use studios in that capacity are usually technically motivated. They they elevated that to well, they a were level musically of motivated. They were, they wanted to get their message across. Yeah, it, it, I, wasn't, it wasn't technical. It was about the aesthetic of the product. Of the product had to be perfect. Well, something you know, and I know that maybe a lot of listeners don't know, if you. Uh, you walk into a venue for a sound check, and the audio guys have been there six hours before you got there. They just finished hanging this huge, beautiful system, and they connected everything together. The first CD that they put on to check out the system is always going to be... Asia. <laughs> exactly. <clears throat> Every there's time. A, there's a beautiful YouTube, by the way, <laughs> of... Asia without all the overdubs. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Have you seen it? No. Oh, yeah, you got to see Asia without any of just the guitar, bass, keys, and drums. And it's it really, again, you're struck by the simplicity and clarity of the thinking, which, you know, I'm prone to overriding. I'm prone to oververbalizing. I'm prone to going, like, full bore into any number of excesses. But to listen to that kind of craftsmanship and, and focus is, is, is pretty stunning. But we got another thing going here, this 1974 tour, which was a lengthy, extensive tour that they're pretty deep in. But uh, this ain't that. This is not that... Uh... No, it's not. It's them being kind of clever. Uh, this is the Bard, post-Bard uh, uh, Steely Dan, where they're just really writing clever words. And using uh, settings of, of song settings. I'm not even sure I've thought about this a lot. Do their words get clever when they become studio masters? I think their words lose some of the luster in, in their studio mastery days. But certainly some of the stuff that they talk, Bodhisattva kills me. That's the piece that we began with. Just It, it, just, it can go in so many directions in terms of meaning. Um, the sparkle of your China. Yeah. The shine yeah. of your Japan. It could be a drug reference it could be any number you think 1974 i don't know you know who knows these guys are such nice kids you know they probably weren't into that no 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 no. (laughs) but the 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 idea too is is also just that i don't know there's something about this era again as i said earlier it's my favorite steely dan era even though i love the pristine uh you know even into the donald fagan years uh, it's pristine, it's incredible, it's magical, and it's kind of my Airless, a little it's bit though. A little airless, yeah. yeah. This is music built uh, from a reference point of soul and country music and rock and roll. It's still got all those little filigrees, those uh, guitar duels and little pocket arrangements. It's thoughtful music, man. 
You know, that, that at the end of the day, what I thought about when I thought about Steely Dan and coming into that, I thought about how it's thoughtful music. And that is, in my opinion, a huge compliment. It's not music that you just generate and crank out because you've got a contract or because you've just made a hit or because it's just, it's thoughtful music. Should we hear a little more thoughtful sure. music? Love to. I kind of did a step on the end of uh, Boston Rag there, I think, but um, we'll let them roll that out because I don't want to cheat anybody out of a note. Um, should we talk about the songs that are coming or just let it be a surprise? You know, it's funny because I, I, I've learned, I've heard Pretzel Lodging Ward out, all these records, um, and, and I sing along with the words. So let me stop you. I'm not, not going to sing along with the words here. Believe me, you don't want to lose listeners. <laughs> but I sing, and I realize that I I know this stuff. I don't have no idea what you want to talk about, but I have I can sing songs. <laughs> I, can just, I grew up with. This. I, by the way, I tormented my kids with this music too, and they I'm sure they adore it now. Yeah, they do. They do. But I mean, they they laugh because every summer road trip was accompanied by <laughs> copious amounts of steely dan <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure they fit in very well at school when they showed up after that the references might be a little old but uh, yeah <laughs> you are believe it or not you're listening to steely dan on wkcr uh, who knew has it ever happened probably <laughs> but not like this because uh the show's called deep focus Arturo O'Farrell is our guest, and we are exploring this live recording in London in 1974 when Steely Dan was still a blood and guts uh, rock and roll band. And I have, we haven't told them who's in the band, and there's some monsters in here. Yeah. So Steely Dan basically is two guys. Donald Fagan plays keyboards, piano in this case. Walter Becker's playing bass, actually, also guitar player. And they are the writers. Fagan is the vocalist. And um, the other guys, some of these guys were part of this band for years. But really, those two guys are the essence of, the, of what Steely Dan is. You've got, and jump in anytime if you want to uh, comment in, uh, on who these guys are. Jeff Skunk Baxter and Denny Diaz on guitars. Yeah, and uh, some of the uh, greatest... Uh soloist in some way and in in especially the work of jeff baxter i think is extraordinary he's also one of the gods of studio guitar in that's la right, through right. by the way i love the fact that it's so la it's so la <laughs> so it's... this is definitely from when they lived in los angeles all yeah. of this stuff and it's just it's it there's something quintessentially not it's it's i don't know it just it's damn happy music, which pisses me <laughs> off. Because <laughs> I'm a New Yorker. Right. And right. I don't know what they're so happy about. <laughs> Too much sunshine, if yeah, you exactly. ask me. <laughs> and uh, drums, you got Jim Hodder and Jeff Porcaro. Yeah. Uh, Royce Jones, percussion and vocal. And um, maybe uh, we should, uh, you love them, you hate them. You can't, can't hear Steely no, Dan without him. You can't not. You can't hate Michael. <laughs> Michael a, McDonald on piano and vocals. You, if you hate him or love him, you'll recognize his voice. Yes, a hundred out of a hundred times. And Jeff Procar, of course, is. Yeah, he went on to Toto uh, and, and just and he died recently. Am I wrong? I thought that happened a while ago. Yeah, am I wrong? One, uh, I want to say it's funny. I have was it ninety two. Was that 
That long ago? Oh, boy, do I have my information. Am I, I could be wrong. Uh, we'll look it up. Someone's going to, the phone's going to yeah, ring. So someone's going to be pissed off at me. <laughs> oh, God, why did you say that? <laughs> He's not even dead yet. <laughs> <laughs> Tremendous musician. Really great. Really great. Really great studio musicians, all of these guys. Again, a connection, which I don't really think about that much, with my essential introduction into professional music making was a studio session guy. And people don't really realize. The common music listener doesn't really realize what a specialized person that is. A person that really knows how to work this, who knows how to play to a click track, knows how to create the kinds of guitar sounds. I mean, most composers and arrangers will say wah-wah, or they'll write reverb. But a really good studio guitar player will ask how many... Uh, milliseconds delay do you want and they'll, they'll know what you they'll know exactly what sound you want the guy that I first worked with was uh, my first contractor was a man named Vinnie Bell it's a true story Vinnie Bell lived in Tenafly, New Jersey and he was uh, a very busy contractor in the New York studio scene I want to tell you two of his uh claims to glory and you'll understand why this guy was so heavy Vinnie Bell was the electric wah-wah guitar sound in the beginning of Shaft oh good yes. god it doesn't <laughs> stop it's, don't, don't even start right. don't even, that very first it's the most unidentifiable wah-wah guitar sound in the history of all music yeah and then yeah, the other thing that he it. was he was the ukulele player and raindrops keep falling on my head oh come on yeah yeah <laughs> oh. yeah wow what yeah. yeah 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 you know you're like me man okay i, mean, I don't talk about this usually because you know i'm playing this like heady jazz stuff i love songs i love the pop songs of when i was a kid and everything and those songs get inside you in a way and it's because of things like that you don't even you don't even know what they are but they they go into your bones. Well, but the thing is that some human being who was essentially a faceless human being uh, did something that reached beyond the anonymity of pop radio. Um, yeah, 1992. Um, August, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, some person found enough personality in their five seconds to reach out across the anonymity of pop radio and make you remember an instrument. I think that's miraculous. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Luther Vandross is another example. He was yeah. a studio singer in New York City. And for years, I would hear this jingle for NBC News. Yeah. And when he sang, I didn't know it was him at the time. Later on, I realized it was him. I still don't know that it's him. But when I heard this jingle at 2 o'clock in the morning, like it just gave me shudders. Because the singing was so spectacular and it was so, such a sound to me, such a powerful thing, such a force. And the same thing with Vinnie's Wawa and uh, on the beginning of Shaft, and um, you know, for that matter, Steve Gadd's playing in uh, in Asia. Yeah, just in, just stuff that you don't, you don't even know where it comes from. Yeah, but you, you that tuning of his tom toms, yeah. just like it's just him. Yup. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things. But yeah, then that's the that's the workaday world I came up in. You know, I probably that, I probably wouldn't be a creative composing musician if I hadn't had the grounding that I had in studio 
work in the studio and seeing people make a living being craftsmen. Another thing that people who are not in this business might not know is that that world is gone. Oh, yeah. For all of you who are 30 <laughs> and under, maybe 30. is No, 30 and under. Those, every single musician you speak to of a certain age will tell you that that era is gone. It's gone, it's gone, it's gone, it's gone. A lot of scores, big-time scores that you hear, not necessarily for the Avengers, <laughs> Game of Thrones, or for that level of music, and I mean that level of filmmaking, but a lot of the scores that you hear are created on computers with libraries. And the, the, the era of, you know, 50-piece orchestra and, you know, 14 percussionists in a rhythm section, um, that era is basically uh, very, very, very small. And if it is at all, because if it is, if, if the scores are done that way still, they're done in, in, in Prague, in Prague. Right. They're done uh, I'm in sure London. You, you agree, though, that one person working at a uh, Apple computer is just as good, right? No. Can... <laughs> no, I don't. I, 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 you know why? Because here's what happens. I learned this a long time ago. The, the real... The real, the real perception of music, as a as an art, is in its inconsistencies and in its 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 inaccuracies. Um, what makes us, what what thrills me to death, is is when a musician sounds so uniquely like them, whether they're playing. I'll tell you a quick story. My favorite pianist of all time. We have till nine. Alicia De La Roca. Alicia De La Roca, the great classical pianist. And uh, then my favorite uh, conductor of that time period was Eric Leinsdorf. And Eric Leinsdorf was conducting the New York Philharmonic. And they were going through the um, Mozart A major. I think I forget the whole number, but it's the famous one. Anyway, there's a double exposition at the beginning. It's like a whole like four or five minutes of music goes by before the piano enters and uh, <laughs> I'll never forget this so they're scraping away and blowing and they get through the whole exposition of the first movement and then Elise Miss Little Rocco enters and she plays about four measures and then she stops <laughs> it was the absolutely perfect four measures too and she walks over to Eric Line so they were both diminutive and in size, and she walks over to to Eric, then Mr. Leinsdorf, and they confer. And this is like this, this New York Philharmonic, New York City, Avery Fisher Hall, and they confer for a minute, and then she walks back to the piano, and he starts the whole thing all over again. Wow! You know, music is human, and art is human, and and what you don't get when you have the perfection of music made in an Apple environment. You lose everything. You lose the, absolutely everything. You lose absolutely everything. Everything that is worth living for, everything that is worth listening to music for. But unfortunately, too many of us have gone, uh, have gotten uh, uh, trained into hearing music only when it's uh, exactly perfect and quantized and tuned and the, every single instrument is playing the same thing. Doesn't work that way. Arturo O'Farrell. <laughs> That's why we're here. That's why we leave the house. That is it. That is, we need it. We need it. We leave it. We leave the house for the mistakes. Trust yes. me, people. <laughs> and I have plenty of them. 
The show's called Deep Focus, and now you know why. I'm Mitch Goldman. We have uh, Arturo's selection, Steely Dan, and, uh, well, we're going to play some more music. When we come back, I'm going to ask you um, how inspiring it is to you when you hear this band dismissed as, quote-unquote, Yacht Rock. So we'll, uh, but first, let's go back to the Rainbow Theater in London, May 1974. Look at that, we've been talking so long, I put the CD player to, to sleep. That's not good. <laughs> Thank you very kindly. Thank you. You know, make us feel most welcome. Thank you. Junk out of the way. All right. I mean, I've heard this on English radio, though, that I couldn't swear to it. But, uh, more guitar, you say. You really want to, the old ears to bleed, you do. That's, all right, Dinky, uh, hit him. Let him have it, Dink. <laughs> Give him the drone. <laughs>
to do it again. Thank you very much. Thank you. English beers.
Thank you. Thank you very much. Royce Jones, ladies and gentlemen. Royce Jones. All right. next song uh, this next song is a frightening little number frightens me I hope it frightens you it's not meant personally it's called the king of the world
All right, if you're going to start a 70s... Oh, king of the world, thank you very much. 70s band, you got to have long endings to your songs. Oh, yeah, songs. The, the guitars have to kind of keep <laughs> soloing after the drums have finally clashed their last cymbal crash. Their and last then maybe cymbal. one more yeah, just to <laughs> tag it on the end. So, uh, yeah, you're listening to WKCR-FM New York, WKCR-HD1, WKCR.org, whatever way you go. Uh, the show's called Deep Focus. I'm Mitch Goldman. Very, very happy to be here in the studio with Arturo O'Farrell. Very honored to be here. And your choice, taking us down this uh, long, dark, lonesome road of uh, Steely Dan. Well, I figured I'd confound the people who think my music is very obtuse and difficult to get through. <laughs> <laughs> We're sitting here with our yachting caps on. Whoa. <laughs> and uh, yeah. having a little rum punch. What? That's not a bad idea. <laughs> that's, that's, we should send out for rum punches. Can we do that? There's got to be a. Isn't there a rum be an punch machine that. in the KCR studios? <laughs> of course. I used to think there was a margarita machine somewhere here, and I didn't ever find it. Occasionally, <laughs> but um, what I, I said I was going to ask you that, so now I have to ask you: Do you uh, does it offend you when people uh, kind of lump these guys in with? Uh, Half a dozen other '70s rock bands. I don't want to get. I don't want to get. Um, I don't want to insult anybody. But there are bands that, you know, whatever. There's no way to compare the Doobie Brothers to Steely Dan. Just forget it. It's just not going to happen. Uh, there's these are craftsmen. They're instrumentalists. They're uh, nerds. I mean, it's you know, it's there's nothing. There's nothing easy. Uh, about their music is very well well written, um, and whether it connotates a specific socioeconomic class or a racial divide, all that stuff, I never never went for that crap anyway. Um, I don't really, you know, th they came from a place and they made the music that they understood it to the best of their ability, and I don't think you can fault uh, them, man, you know, in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I'm not sure what the references to yacht. Uh, rock is, but I guess it has to do with a socioeconomic class, it has to do with the racial divide, and it has to do with a specific, uh, um, but you know, uh, uh, their music is, is singularly unique, and I think proof of that is the fact that they had nary a hit single, Fair Safe for One, never got a Grammy that I can think of. Yeah, I yeah, I don't know off the top of my head, but I don't so remember So they, they, to, to, you know, to compare, to, to you know, compare Hotel California to anything that, that, that Steely Dan came up with is just an exercise in futility. They did not receive the mass acclaim that the Eagles or the Doobie Brothers did. Um, it's much more sophisticated. I'm pretty sure they never got a Grammy. I'm pretty sure they never got uh, that coveted, uh, hmm. you know, Rolling Stone cover. Yeah, but they uh, they had a level of, pop success i mean by the time on the contrary their, their music is clearly pop in some ways and, yeah and the very best aspects of it as some of the great paul simon's music is <laughs> indeed you know um this there people who who denigrate pop really anger me because there's something brilliant pop there is a brilliant pop now and there always will be a place for commercial cleverness just because something is uh 
geared towards being popular does not make it any less valid than just because just as much as something that is uh, created for the elite and uh, for the uh, the intelligentsia. I'm going to reframe what you just said, if I may, um, rather than in terms of for an, an elite class, the difference between how music functions for a lot of people, maybe the m- most people who it washes over them and they're just responding to the feeling that it gives them versus an active listener who's accustomed to listening to music with some more meat to it and experiencing what the elements are that generate that feeling. There's, uh, and that's not necessarily a class thing or... No, I don't think it has anything to do with class. I'm just saying that, uh, you know, people think this is part of an era of whatever. I... Quite frankly, when I started listening to Steely Dan, all the cool kids, all the parkies, uh, were listening to Steely Dan. And yeah. it was edgy, and it was a little bit of left of uh, center. Stomping on the Avenue by Radio City. Yeah, I mean, it was not. It was not. It was not for the illiterate because the words are very uh, filled with references that you have to either know or you don't. Um, it was. There's a lot of druggy talk in all the music. There's a lot of. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's it's stuff that 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 had a culture to it that wasn't mass culture it was uh, the the music of Steely Dan was not written uh, necessarily uh, though it could have been written to celebrate mass culture it was not written um, in a way that that, uh, that appealed to the lowest common denominator there was always a certainly a, a, a kind of uh, intelligence to it that that, that and I and I think that that's the true the true not just for the words but for the music as well. And there's something there's a little bit of an askance sort of posture of standing outside looking in. Definitely, definitely, and that's what I related to. I really look. I was playing uh, free jazz. I was playing free jazz and touring with Carla Blay and uh, experimenting with all kinds of strange combinations and listening to Steely Dan. I didn't, they didn't play Steely Dan. I didn't play Steely Dan, you know, in my endeavors. But I listened to it as I was making music that was probably better left unplayed. <laughs> <laughs> Not Carlos, of course, but... No, but I mean, you know, we, we, we was writing all kinds of strange... We were playing a lot of free jazz and, um, and listening to Steely Dan, which makes sense to me because it wasn't so much that... that there's a kind of there's a zeitgeist to what you do and who you are and what you listen to that has bigger implications than the specific thing you do and listen to and are working on you know and that's a hard concept for people how about something else that might be lost in this age of iPhones and all that at that time when you were a young man and playing with an artist like Carla Blay and you're touring and everything people shared music and turned each other onto music. There was one stereo in the van that was driving to the next gig in Bochum or wherever you were. And um, was there some flow? And in that kind of environment, would you ever say, hold on, guys, I got something for you? You know, it's funny. It was also the era of Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers. It was the, the era of the Talking Heads. It was also the era of, I mean, a lot of, a lot of really hip music was coming out that was not designed to be intelligentsia. It was trying to make record sales. 
Um, and I think that a lot of the musicians uh, appreciated it. You know, I spoke about this. We spoke about popular music with Steve Swallow and Bob Moses and folks that ended up in our circles. And, of course, everybody's a fan of R&B. And everybody's a fan of Motown. Everybody's a fan of, of that part of our lives. And that's not music that's created to be intelligentsia at all. But again, I mean, I think it, I, th- that, I think it comes down to the idea that there's a craftsmanship that is honest and a craftsmanship that is commercial. That's <laughs> really what it comes down to. If you design music to generate likes, if you design music to generate uh, 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 downloads, that's what you deserve. That's what you deserve, and that's the kind of people that you'll attract. If you design music that you know may attract that attention, but that you also understand is integral to your your cause and your thinking and your aesthetic and that general all-around zeitgeist that I spoke of earlier, that's a different, that's a horse of a different color. And I think that um, the best way that I can explain it is this. I was taught very early on as a composer that the first person you should throw in the light is yourself. Hmm. You should make yourself chuckle. You should make yourself go, wow, that's awesome. That's really cool. Look what I can do. Look at that. I never thought of it this way. This is really awesome. If you can do that, then God bless you because you're not working to make someone else's uh, vision of what you should be fulfilled. That's really, really hard. And it takes a certain amount of nakedness to yourself. It takes a certain amount of yielding to the chaos inside your voice I mean, at some point if you're going to be an honest artist you're going to sit down with a piece of paper and write what goes on in your head and what goes on in your head more often than not is a mess right it gets better as you do it more but you have to give in to that chaos you have to cast, cast caution to the wind throw yourself over the cliff and do whatever is in here and that's really hard most people are metric especially now most people live their lives by metrics and quantics and analytics and boy, is that dumb. <laughs> and the feeling you get from somebody like Steely Dan uh, or Paul Simon or Talking Heads is that they did that, but also kept take care, took care of the metrics. Mm. And that's the balance that I think I love. That's the balance that's that, that, that appeals to me as an artist. You want to talk about uh, what's happening on stage with these musicians? Because uh, these guys are playing it quite a high level anything you're hearing that you uh i hear meticulous rehearsal (laughs) i hear meticulous rehearsal and i hear um i almost can envision the stage set up and what it looks like and i've never seen steely dan much to my discredit but i've seen videos of steely dan and i know what and i know what it's like i've been around bandstands my entire life both rock and roll disco funk uh small group big bands classical symphony orchestras i know i've been around bandstands my whole life and there's a, a fair amount of, cl- there's a, a lot of electricity and give and take and extrasensory perception in the playing. The playing is very accurate. The playing is not sloppy. It's highly, highly crafted. And so they're listening. Hmm. They're listening carefully. They have good monitors, good mixers. They have, they're really, really aware of each other's parts. And the reason that either they've been, uh, they've been, well, obviously they've been, playing this music for a long time by the time they get to this concert they the bit of research that i did they seem like they've been playing pretty consistently for a solid couple of months and almost every show it's the same set list more or less yeah 
Yeah, which used to really bug me when I did shows like that. <laughs> I was with Harry Belafonte for many years. Oh, yeah. Well, and we thought it was his musical director. But I loved, and this is why I can relate to Steely Dan, too, because I loved the idea. In fact, Harry traveled with the same, I don't know what you call it, the black flooring. Oh, the Marley. Marley with the markings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, and, and we had a keyboard tech, and everything, every piece of equipment was the same every single night. Yeah. You could have played uh, Westbury Music Fair or the Nassau Coliseum or wherever, and the stage would not have a, you would know. Yeah. The stage looked the same. And and the keyboard, the, the MIDI setup was the same. Everything was, I mean, it was just literally. And then you played the same exact show. Not just the same exact show, but I think unlike Steely Dan, the same solos. Yeah, yeah. And it was, and, and, and somehow Harry had the grace and the magic. When really, Harry's huge, huge influence on me as well. He had the grace and the magic to make it the most exciting show in the world for the people, and sometimes for us. Yeah. So I really respect the act of getting up on stage. And by the way, this is where I also differ from jazz musicians. We're entertainers. Our job is to serve humanity. (laughs) I don't know what makes us different from plumbers. I think plumbers are more important on some level. Because a good plumber will save your house, whereas listening to a great piece of music will touch your soul, but it will not save your house. And so, to some degree, the 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 the, the lesson of of Steely Dan and Harry Belafonte is that they're there to make the listener's life a better experience. That's pretty sacred to me. That's how I look at everything. And when I talk about the work as a jazz musician, as a composer, as a da 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 da, da I still think in terms of yo, we got. The first job at hand is to lighten the load for the people who come to see us play. First, that is of utmost importance. Everything else is secondary. How important you feel, how good you feel. At the end of the day, man, because I've been doing this for a lot of years, man. And sometimes people come up to you and they say the most amazing things. Remember, right after, uh, right after, uh, I forget what, what, uh, was it Sandy? Mm-hmm. Uh, a woman came up to me and said, and I, and I have to It's May of 2019. This is a deep focus. And you know, because you've been listening, you made it this far. You probably know it's Arturo O'Farrell, who's my guest. And the topic is Steely Dan. I hope you know both of their collective musics. But if you don't, you should check them out. Uh, Arturo in particular, wonderful guest and... Uh, brilliantly imaginative, deeply rooted composer, arranger, player, pianist. Yeah, check out his music. And uh, yeah, if you don't know, you should know. Deep Focus is on your favorite podcasting app. You can also always find us at the hosting site, which is mitchgoldman.podbean.com. And uh, yeah, this is part one of three. So go check out parts two and three and see what else is out there. Report back to me on Instagram. That's the best place to get in touch with us. We are Deep Focus Podcast at Instagram. I'm Mitch Goldman, Deep Focus.